The Hard Yards on Sports Joe. Brought to you by Innocent Super Smoothies. On the bright side. Before, but I'm the referee on this field, not you. Hi Rob, Zeeb's here. Just want to discuss the captaincy next. He's calling. Oh, and Ring Rose comes through. Oh, that is brilliant from Ring Rose. Ring Rose is going here. What a score! You're very welcome to the Hard Yards. I'm Andy McGeady and we have another good show lined up for you today to discuss the weekend's rugby action and week ahead. I'm joined in studio by Pat McCarry. Pat, how are you? Pretty good, thanks very much. Uh, James Downey. Andy, there you go. And we're delighted to be joined by Bernard Jackman. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. Um, a little later on, we'll speak to the man who took charge of one of the Pro 14 semi-finals on Saturday, Leicester Munster. Stuart Berry will be in our studio a little, little later on. Uh, gents, that was a good game of rugby in the RDS. Yeah, that was exciting at the end. I actually didn't think it was... Uh, the quality was brilliant. It was, it was quite a, a traditional game, a lot of box kicking, but um, certainly it was... Um, yeah, there was a, there was a hell of a lot of uh, aggression, big collisions. But I felt I felt that both teams um, probably could have played a little bit more. You know, there was a huge amount of box kicking, and um, it was very similar to the to the final last week in, in Bilbao, where both teams were afraid to make uh, make any mistakes. Apart from the start of the game, where obviously um, you know Leinster got that great try through uh, through James Ryan. Um, I, I just didn't think the Leinster played as with as much ambition as as they probably have in you know earlier on in the year. In Bilbao, we said it was because of the weather, but the weather in the audience no, was fantastic. Yeah, I just listen. It's cup. It's, it's cup final rugby, and um, you know it's knockout, and everyone's afraid to make a mistake. But I, I definitely, I definitely think, listen. I can understand why Munster played that way because they're away from home. Um, they were looking to put pressure on James Lowe particularly, and Conor Murray's a brilliant box kicker. But um, certainly, I just felt that Leinster. Probably could have um, played with a little bit more um, more wit, um, and it w- they would have probably caused much more problems than just playing that um, that aerial aerial game. Do you think mm-hmm. that that's also down to the amount of personnel changes they've made coming into it? Like, there's a lot of like what do we say six changes was it six changes yeah. in the starting lineup yeah and and like key positions as well, Birch, and then you have um, Nasewa who only lasts forty minutes and like. You're kind of going into that. You're making all those changes, and then all of a sudden you're going into a semi-final. As you say, it's going to be cup rugby, and you want to kind of tighten things up a little bit. But um, do you think that that's got a huge thing, a huge bearing on it? Yeah, I think no. Obviously, it has. And obviously, if your if your source of possession is from box kicks, um, you're pretty limited to how how you can actually turn it into good ball. So, um, in France, the monster, you know, they kick down to fifteens. They generally arrive at the same time as the ball, and then um, all your forwards got to work back. So it's hard to generate quick ball t- to play off. So I, I, I can see, I can see why Leinster would have got caught tied into that, um, and I can understand, like, understand why. Um, also, in terms of those changes they made, in terms of the fact it's a semi-final. Um, but uh, for me, I, I don't think it was a brilliant game. You know, mm-hmm. apart from the last four or five minutes when it was exciting, I thought Leinster were pretty much um, in control most of the game. I think a lot of people did and then suddenly there was a monster try right at the end yeah. and people were doing the maths and looking at the clock mm-hmm. and going oh shite <laughs> <laughs> yeah and then, and then I suppose Leinster had the thing they didn't want to contest the restart they kicked it long and and all of a sudden it was the most exciting passage of the whole game and Munster broke up to beyond the halfway line there but uh, yeah I, for me I thought Leinster looked like they were in control of the whole thing as well and um, yeah they, they looked good and James Ryan was for me like man of the match for the third game in a row like he was absolutely brilliant and uh, yeah, that that move at the start with um, you know with James Lowe just kind of doing Zebo there and kind of setting up Jack Conan for that try and and there we have a whole back row for Lens. Can, can, can we talk about that bit of work below? Mm. He packs yeah. an awful lot into that move. He's involved <laughs> twice, and in the second part when he takes the ball on, I'm you'd actually need time to describe what he does. But the offload's incredible. Yeah, he's he's been a he's been a brilliant signing for Leinster. I think as well you got to look at uh, the quality of Leinster's foreign recruits. I mean, Eastern Sea obviously came in two thousand nine, but you know Scott Fardy, you know was a was a well known international player, but he probably has played above what his CV showed for Leinster in terms of his influence. You know, it's very hard for foreigners to come in and year one 
um, adapt to a different style of rugby, adapt to a new city, um, and be as consistent as he's been. And then James Lowe, obviously, he hasn't played some European games because of the foreign player ruling, but um, he's been a, an incredible signing. He's a different, completely different profile than what Leinster have, um, and is is very very popular in the dressing room by all accounts. Um, you know, creates that feel good factor. Has got no fear. Um, boys love him, and then on the field, he has that ability to to beat people make big tackles just be physically dominant and then obviously you know he had two two important roles in in, in the lead up to that try um, and that offload was you know w- was brilliant but I, I liked in the first half the way Leinster were actually their forwards were throwing a lot more passes you know so they were tipping on outside or tipping back in um, which led him and in the second half it seemed to be very very collision based maybe he just got tired maybe the communication died down and that's understandable but when they did shift the point of contact I thought that you know they were much more challenging to the to the, the Munster defence mm-hmm. There's a just talking about foreign players there this um, piece of audio I want to play now it's Leo Cullen after the game talking about the decision to pick Issa who lasted till half time um, Issa was struggling to train during the week um, so to get through 40 minutes the way he did I thought was a real testament to him and you know just uh, it's hard to speak uh, highly enough about the guy Um you know, he's uh, he's been amazing. Um, so yeah, I thought he led the team well this week, even though he was uh, compromised physically. Um, but he got through the game. Uh, the fort, well, he got through the 40 minutes. Um, so we weren't sure how long he was going to last. Um, but we had a fair idea that he wouldn't make it past half time. So uh, we made the call there. Rory trained there during the week. So um, yeah, Rory, uh, he's he's at a different level to anyone I've come across before. Okay, so this is Leo Cullen essentially telling us that they picked Eason and Taylor to start and to play a half a rugby. Um, how unusual is that? You're picking a player, you're burning the bench spot. So you know O'Loughlin's going to come in probably at half time. Um, Jimmy, is that something you came across in your player career where someone would be picked purely for, I suppose, a combination of A, their leadership skills in the week coming into the match and also simply walking out onto that pitch? Yeah, no, I have. I've had, um, I think, um, Dylan Hartley's played a couple of games where he was supposed to be, didn't train all week and then came in just to have that leadership, that extra person on the field. I think in Issa's case, very different. I think he's just, I think when you lose certain, like certain players and you lose certain uh, aspects in that game, that Leinster had to make all those changes. And then you, you, if, you, if you lose the East as well, it's actually going to have a huge impact. And uh, just to have that guy kind of on there, steering the ship, controlling everything. Um, being the chat in uh, in Ross Burns' ear as well, he does his forty minutes. His job is done, and he's done. Like, but apparently, like he he hadn't trained, done much at all all week. God knows how he played, but um, look, he did enough. And then you bring in Rory O'Loughlin on, who's youthful exuberance coming on there, and uh, he added a bit as well. But I just think he's a, like everyone's spoken so well about him. You saw James Lowe's interview after the game, um, just how highly they respect him and everything he's done. So just to have him, his presence alone on that field, uh, obviously. Uh, just galvanise the whole side hmm. Bernard do you ever uh, pick someone knowing you're going to be taking them off at 40 minutes um, I don't have many guys like Neeson Siwa yet um, I wouldn't <laughs> mind I would, and we're trying to develop some <laughs> some people like him um, he's he, he's special I, I agree with James I think I think listen uh, he would have been uh, it would have given a lot of the youngsters a lot of comfort knowing that he's there uh, particularly his his work in the backfield as as James said just in the dressing room it would have given Munster a lift you know if Sexton been out etc and then Issa was out as well it would have given them a little bit of confidence and while Leo said you know the New Year's going to play 40 if the game was going against Leinster who's to, who's to say he wouldn't have played 80 you know he's mm. he's capable of that um, he's very mentally very mentally tough he's, he's only got before that game he had two games left um, I wouldn't have been surprised if uh, if he had to stay on he could stay on I remember <clears throat> his first season he broke his arm mm. he broke his arm early doors and ended up playing you know I think 30 more minutes um, his, his level uh, his pain threshold is very high uh, I just think Leinster at half time obviously felt the game was they've settled into the game pretty well um, you know they have Rory Lachlan on the bench and you know, better to take him off than risk not having him available next week. And hopefully, he will be available next week. It'd be a, um, a fit and swan song for him to to be able to. And the way he, the way he went off, I don't think there's any concern about it. I'd, I'd imagine um, he'll be he'll be starting and probably play, well, hopefully eighty minutes, but um, definitely play more than forty next weekend. Hmm. Um, in terms of the preparation that players go through, the little extra bits that they do. Um, before we came into studio, uh, Pat, you're having an interesting little conversation there with with Jimmy. Do you want to just bring us back to that? Well, yeah. I 
I was talking to Jimmy there about I said when I was over in Bilbao um, on the same flight as, as the Lancer lads and you saw Nasewa had a game ready a portable game ready machine um, with him like, and, and I was just kind of thinking was that because he was carrying injuries but you were saying Jimmy that that's actually common enough practice these days <laughs> Jimmy for, for, for the audience what's a game ready machine? Game ready machine is a compre- ice compression machine that um, yeah, com- pretty much it's like an ice bag on you put on wherever you want um, parts of your body that's that's injured and it actually just uh, puts pressure on it and obviously tries to get the blood out of it. It's a swelling, inflammation of say knees, ankles, elbows, whatever shoulders. Um, so it's actually pretty constant. I think especially for older players as well, um, who are uh, and I guess your professional players. Um, you can even sleep in them now as well at night, and there's even I think complexes are even even more prominent. What's a, um, what's a complex? Um, complex is one of those little kind of well, you can use them on your abs, your little ab machine. The, the oh, this is the late night shopping <laughs> yeah, channel. This is, yeah. Eating your ice cream, having it on. No, but um, it, it allows you to say if you've got a broken leg or something to actually keep working the muscles uh, on your knee as well, and so you don't actually lose all that muscle, uh, and you can keep working back while uh, just keeps everything going really. Mm. Um, but every player seems to have them nowadays and um, initially at the start it was only one or two I think per team but now uh, it seems to be the norm uh, but look it's just it's a small thing really that East is doing but it's the small percentages that these professional players do and, and brings them to that level Yeah a lot of the players are actually <coughs> buying their own now so <coughs> it, James said I think you know four or five years ago the club would have two they're about six thousand, um, and you know after the game it was it was straight trying to get to the physio first to get th- get that game ready because that gave you a better chance of being able to recover for the next game. And often people will be, you know, going around the city trying to share it over weekends, etc. Whereas now, obviously, you know, I'm sure a team at Leinster probably have six or seven, but a lot of players, particularly guys plus t- uh, over thirty, going by their own so they can just you know make sure that they're doing everything possible to to recover. But you know, someone like someone, the fact that Issa didn't train this week. You know that wouldn't be an issue for him. You know his training age is so high, um, his mental approach is so high. He knows his role. You know it's not a big deal. He could probably go, you know, from game to game over uh, you know over six or seven weeks without training. It's just after that then it becomes an issue. He'd probably lose a little bit of sharpness. But I, the fact that he didn't train all day all week, you know, for some people in the general public would think, oh wow, how can he play? But realistically, at this stage of the season, it's the load is lower. Um, and it's just trying to keep fresh and, and know your know your detail. But all the work is done 100%. up to now, and everyone knows the patterns, what they're doing. So, as you say, I completely agree that once he's not involved, it doesn't really matter. Like, yep. like he knows the detail. All he has to do is kind of just play games. Yeah. Right. So it's a very tight game in the end, sixteen fifteen. And um, but before that last, the final try was scored with a minute or so to go. Uh, there was another. There was a key decision point. Um, in the game with about 10 to go uh, Munster got a penalty in Leinster's half um, centre of the field not a gimme kick no. but this was a decision at the time where Peter O'Mahony decided to go for the corner uh, and he talked about that after the game it's, it's, it's easy to say in hindsight but there's, there's decisions to be made out there you know 65 after 65 minutes of rugby you know what I mean that's my call i got to make those calls you know what I mean I, I, I felt like we, were, we had a lot of momentum um you know, we were we were winning a lot of collisions. We were we were going well up the field, and that was my decision at the time. You know what I mean? That's that's the way I felt it was going. Hey, look, if we'd gone down there and scored, it would have been a big momentum changer, obviously. But you know, we were inaccurate the lineup, put us on the back foot. Then we were on the back foot and conceded a turnover there, penalty holding on. Grant, so to be clear, um, I, I don't care whether Munster scored or not. I'm interested in the decision at the time, right? Now, for, for me, we were talking beforehand. I reckon Connor Murray might have taken the kick. Pat, you thought maybe it was, was Kiki, no, wouldn't it? No, it was Murray, because Murray, yeah. Murray had went up and they actually had signalled to Sue <laughs> Berry, the ref, that um, Murray was going <coughs> to kick it. And then mm. O'Mahony came up and had a word in his ear. And they actually, I think at the time, it was like they've changed their decision because like, he, he signalled that they had changed their decision. So it was O'Mahony then who did make the call. And. Mm. And then it went for the line, and uh, James Ryan, I think, got a hand on it then. So it wasn't the clean line-out ball that they were looking for. I think Conor Murray somehow got his hand on it, and then James Ryan sacked him with a, with a nice tackle as well. So they're on the back foot. But they did keep their hand on the ball. But then James Tracy, one of the subs who'd come on, like for Leinster, and you know another guy who'd come off the, the bench and did a good job, he got the turnover on John Klein then as well. So... Uh, it was just a move that just backfired badly and it gave Lancer massive momentum. So f- there were five points down at this stage. It, getting that kick, if they had got the kick, uh, two points down and for my money, without a Sexton, without Nathay, with a McFadden on the field, um, you're you're removing an awful lot of options for Leinster. Uh, 
What did you think of that call, Jimmy? It was an interesting one. It was interesting, yeah, but I think you have to... I guess you saw the discussions that were going on, but you have to trust what, like Pete's in the cold face, he's got a feel of what's happening up front and he's obviously been confident and gone, well, look, we can actually take them. Mm. If, if there was any sense of doubt straight away, he would have gone for the post. But look, I, I guess they thought they were on a bit of a purple patch, they had a bit of momentum there and they could actually just get them over the line. But look, as you say, Leinster produced these moments again just to stop them. And But look, it's... As I say, he's there, he's in the front line, He's he's got a sense of exactly what's happening there and you got to back your captain, unfortunately. You know, that's, oh, sorry, not unfortunately, but like you saw, Chris Robshaw's done it, but and his that's backfired on him. That, that's mean. <clears throat> it, it, it is, but like, look, that's but that's sport. Like, you know, you make these decisions, and and these things happen. I think we're seeing, um, Bernard, as part of a general trend of the game, we're seeing more teams go for the corner because I think people. This is my view from the outside. I think people now know. Um, about kicking percentages yeah. and how much they decline after you go outside let's say 40 metres they go down like a rock um, and people are saying no the odds of us getting points in the long term are better if we go for the corner more often yeah. is my interpretation right or is there something else no no on? 100% and um, also um, you know did miss JJ miss any relatively easy kick earlier on Keats was just on wasn't on very long I think um, it was a massive kick for them I think also you got to take into, fact that into account the potential negative uh, effect it has on the team if, if they miss that kick uh, you know and I also think the Munster probably have from last time I looked we haven't played them for a, lot, a while but they certainly have one of the best um, conversion rates of, of five metre line outs into, into, into tries um, earlier on in the year um, and I think the big problem for them was they didn't catch it cleanly they catch it cleanly mm. there's a strong chance they score or Leinster infringe and suddenly they have four or five minute period there where they're they're camped in that corner and the whole momentum changes Leinster now are defending their line um, the worst case scenario for well obviously the worst case scenario was to lose the ball cleanly but the worst case scenario for that was that ball came back um, in a in a fractured way and then yeah. Leinster were able to gain momentum Munster were out of, out of out of shape I think I think as well if they do kick the points there's no guarantee they're going to get back up there again I mean it's, you're slightly against the hill there um, Munster hadn't looked up until the last minute um, Munster hadn't looked like they were capable of breaking out of their 22 um, so I think from Peter's point of view if you think back in terms of possession that se- or territory in that second half they hadn't been up there very often um, and he probably felt we needed to get a score here now yeah. to change the, uh, the perception of the game because we mightn't get back up and get another opportunity or or we'll infringe in our own half and Leinster kick the points and be back to five again so I can completely understand um, why they went to the corner that time and it was just you know very good defence and a very good read by James Ryan that they managed to disrupt the ball Okay um, There was another incident in this game that provoked a lot of discussion uh, certainly during the match uh, the John Klein clear out yeah. on Ross Byrne uh, it was quite a low um, hit uh, for my money it was head on head someone might have said shoulder to Burns head um, but either way the TMO got involved and it was decided between the referee and TMO that this was worthy of a yellow not a red um, opinions on this maybe maybe just because you were just ha- it was a good contest and you know Munster were nearly in there it had cost Munster a try maybe there's a, there's a little bit of kind of provincial bias there Irish bias but I was happy enough that it was a yellow but Let's say if that had been a Scarlet or had been a Glasgow, I probably would have been calling for a red card. But so, you know, like I was just happy that like seven points have been given up. You're being stupid here. Yellow card will just, you know, take take the hit there. But by the letter of the law there, he was just so reckless on Ross Byrne and just went in, cleared him out, hit the head. And if you hit the head, you have to take the call. Like So could have easily been a red card. I think the linesman was actually telling uh, Stuart Berry that actually it could have been a red card. But Stuart actually... Uh, maybe he was close to it and kind of that, like thought yellow would do the job. Yeah, no, I thought it was um, pretty reckless as well. Um, if you're going in that low and kind of going in head first, you're going to connect with something. And, yeah. and I guess Ross Byrne was low and in a low position, but um, head on head for me, that's that's reckless and and should have been red. And I guess Cole the day I can understand Pat's point of view with the kind of <laughs> the bias a little bit in terms of like Irish teams. But look, the laws are laws and probably should have gone I thought he was a very lucky boy yeah, yeah very very yeah, lucky I'm boy I'm sure he would have run off taking that yellow it'll be interesting to hear Stuart's um, point of view later on is he allowed to speak about it he no. can't so that's yeah. the thing and I, I will mention that later on <laughs> we might chat him outside the studio <laughs> um, so just to be clear and I'll mention this Stuart when we have him in as well um, the sighting window still open 
So in fairness to all parties, uh, yeah. because the referee's report will be part of it, I don't. He won't be able to answer that question. Now I can ask, but he won't answer. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. <laughs> um, in fairness, th- the way the breakdown has gone, um, it's it's very difficult not to not, not to um, overstep the mark at, at certain times. I mean, there's a there's a very fine line between being super efficient. Uh, and being illegal, um, I think in this day, in, in this example, obviously John Klein, you know, he went the wrong side of, of the law. Um, but you know, I've looked at Munster's breakdown, Leinster's breakdown, um, particularly around when they played the Scarlets, and and you need to have that level of aggression, um, but you just got to make sure you don't make contact, you know, with the heads. But it's a it's a tricky one. He's he's probably one of the most aggressive and the biggest enforcers at the breakdown you know so for Munster aggressive and enforcer are euphemisms when it comes to (laughs) the breakdown no us before he said it as well Uh, (laughs) no no but they um, he is he's impressive when he gets it right you know he Mm. creates he he creates quick ball um, he creates space he cleans long Um, on this occasion you know he he got it wrong and I I agree it could have been an easily red card I I think yellow card he he can have no argument to yellow card there were some great clear outs in the game like as well like Tyg for a long first half absolutely ended someone and Conley yeah yeah yeah, absolutely ended him but like you're coming into that pace and trajectory and you're going to do damage well that's that's the thing so if let's say Conway shifts his position Right, and he shifts his position for some reason, and he drops his head. And Furlong's clear out, which on tape is actually fine, would somehow would would then magically change into being not reckless, but certainly, well, you hit his head, you're off, mate. Yeah, but they're the percentages yeah. that that's the nature of the sport. Like you yeah. look at poor James uh, James Dunahoo, and he's trying to get mm. his foot out the rook. Oh. Just someone comes in, but someone that's timing. That's that's awkward, just, yeah. You know, and yeah. it's horrible. And geez, I wish him a, a speedy recovery on it. But you're talking that he's trying to get his leg out of the way. Someone's come in, like a couple of seconds later, he's fine. There's no issues. Mm. You know, and it's. I think the breakdown is more dangerous than than the tackle area. Yeah. yeah. To be honest, um, particularly if you're in if you're in trying to slow the ball down, you're just in a prone position. Um, obviously, you know, there's been some high profile hamstring. Hamstring, hamstring, hamstring ruptures. But um, when you're when you're twisted, uh, when your when your head is below your knees, you're you're, you're trying to jackal. You're just very prone, and um, the power and the force that um, the arriving players are are able to generate now. Um, for me, that's the that's the area that's the area of the game that you're more likely to get injured rather than a ball carry tackle. Everyone talks about, uh, you know, concussion injuries and, and um, tackle technique and lower and higher tackles and obviously that's important but um, I think the breakdown is probably the area where there's, you're more you're more uh, susceptible to a, a big collision. Yeah, the nasty twisting ones as well. We've seen a couple of those. Yeah, but they're not supposed to be nasty, it's just the technique. They, yeah. they, they become nasty by, by nature of, your, of the injury that can happen if your foot gets stuck. Or, mm. or stuck. But um, effectively, that's that's probably a safe enough technique, you know, once everything goes uh, goes okay and the, and the boy's foot isn't blocked. You know, I'm talking about a proper a proper when, you know, they, they grab under your under your stomach and, and, and twist you out of the way. I'm not talking about a neck roll or anything like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, which is obviously very dangerous. But um, unfortunately, it is, the, the defensive player is in a, is in a vulnerable position in, in that situation whereas you're carrying the ball you're in control to a certain extent of, of how you fall how you, you know what angle what angle of the tackler you hit but when you're in that jackal position um, you're pretty vulnerable yep speaking of injuries um, Ulster that was that turned a bit <laughs> <laughs> before kickoff. you lose a couple of players having already lost uh, Best and Henderson um, Pat that didn't look great for Ulster when the, when the starting whistle was going no, yeah, uh, Ross Kane and and Charles Piatow both uh, chalked off the uh, marked off the, the starting fifteen there before the game even started. So they had to, some late changes there. I have heard talk that maybe Piatow might have been carrying something even before that warm up injury. But this is conspiracy, Pat. Is it? There's some conspiracies out there, and um, yeah, so maybe maybe was it out there for the cameras that Piatow was out there felt the leg a little bit and then he had to go. So luckily enough, they had a. a Plan B in place, and Ludic dropped back, and Craig Gilroy came in, and all worked out pretty well for him because Gilroy got got himself two tries Didn't and work out brilliantly for Ludic. No, actually, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> worked out okay for Gilroy and Ulster, yeah. but yeah, Ludic lasted around 15, 16 minutes. But yeah, all the things that went wrong, like you look at the players that they didn't have by half time of that game, you know, like so many senior players and a lot of young young lads kind of stepped up. Um, Treadwell did well. 
Uh, Luke Marshall did well, got, got a bad injury himself as well then. But Tom O'Toole had a good game as well. Johnny McPhillips they'll be happy with. So uh, they, they really needed to win that and um, did, did a great job. Like they, they hardly anybody at the game, I think six and a half thousand because it wasn't a season ticket deal as well. Like so, six and a half thousand for a game which could, I, for my money, have be, have defined your next couple of years of rugby when yeah, you take yeah. player recruitment into account. I thought that was an extraordinary crowd, and, and there's reasons for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still thought it was extraordinary. Um, Bernard, um, before we went into the studio, uh, we mentioned the very start of the game when Ospreys drove over for that opening try. It didn't look as if Ulster were putting up a huge amount of defence and then everything changed yeah it looked uh, it was worrying for, for Ulster how um, how poorly to start the game given what was at stake I, I understand your point about six and a half thousand people that's that's very worrying for for the, for the immediate long term future of Ulster have the fans become um so this is disenfranchised with a team that they, they couldn't come and, and support them in a, in a must-win game. I mean, European Cup, Ultra have never been out of European Cup and, and they've been a... Um, they've had some unbelievable nights um, and afternoons in, in Europe since they, since they obviously won at early doors and I think for them to be out of it would have been, you know, it would have been a massive, massive blow financially and as you said, in terms of keeping their best players, signing their best players. Um, so to get through it is huge. The fact that they can only entice that... F- that number of fans, you know, makes you wonder, you know, um, that or makes tells you there's a long way to go in terms of repairing that damage, um, and also the way the way they started, uh, there was no intensity, there was no organisation. Then they started to lose a couple more players. I think it's testament to um, to them that they didn't panic and they and they found a way back into the game. I, I, I thought Luke Marshall was was excellent. He took mm-hmm. responsibility. I thought Johnny McPhillips. I think he's shown that he actually has a future. I think yeah. he's a he's a talented uh, player. But the reality is, he don't want to. The, the weight of the pressure of of rebuilding Ulster rugby on his shoulders. You know, he needs someone alongside him um, or ahead of him who's a little bit more, a lot more experienced, um, who can take on that pressure. And then, you know, the coaches can work with Johnny McPhillips in terms of bringing him through gradually. Um, Ospreys, I think, will be very disappointed having started so well. Just their their accuracy and their um, their kicking game was was really poor because they were the ones who had the the experienced players on the field. I mean, they had Alan Wynne Jones, you know, Dan Bigger, um, uh, Dan Lydiot, etc., who were British and Irish Lions, had been in that situation, those pressure games before. And you would have expected them, given the way the Ulster started to lose players, you know, and the way Ulster started to be able to put, put them to the sword. But they just, um, yeah, it was, a, it was a poor performance by, by Ospreys. But in fairness to Ulster, they got the job done. And for, for Dan McFarland coming in now, that's a that's a massive boost to know that they're in, in Champions Cup rugby next year. Well, whenever he is I able think, to come I, in. I think he'll be there. Yeah, yeah, yeah maybe that's it. Yeah, maybe with the Champions Cup, they can, you know, IRFU can spare some extra cash for <laughs> to clear him out of his contract. Yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking of coaches, uh, so John O'Gibbs is, is leaving. Mm-hmm. Uh, he visited La Rochelle last week, as had been reported in the French press, and he was questioned after the game. A um, little bit testy on BBC Northern Very, Ireland. Yeah. Uh, one of those Martin O'Neill, Tony O'Donoghue <laughs> moments, I think. Um, but. He was making the point that look, there's there's three weeks before this final game because of the way that the uh, the, the, the season is scheduled. Um, work is done. It was a day off. Yeah. No, like it was it was a very contra- uh, confrontational interview on the BBC. Um, but I think I think they were entitled to ask him those questions because two days before, like the biggest game of Ulster, as you said, for the next few years, your man goes off to La Rochelle. He's supposed to be going home to New Zealand for family reasons. And then all of a sudden he's getting interviewed for a job over in France two days before a big game. Like so, what's that going to say to the squad as well? Like, and unless you come out and just be kind of upfront about it, like, but oh yeah, like, like of course the BBC were entitled to kind of ask those questions to him as well. And now he did handle it well, but at, at the end I don't know why you're asking me those questions. Like, it was the guy's job to ask him those questions, and you know it was well worth kind of watching back in it. And I think he was, he said similar stuff in the post-match interview as well. I think we had uh, Jack O'Toole up at, up, up at the game and he was talking to him about it and said the preparation wasn't hindered in any way. If you can say the preparation was hindered, um, you know, maybe I had a problem there, but it wasn't. Everything worked well. They got the win, so he kind of gets away with it a little bit as well. But if he shows up at La Rochelle next year, Ulster fans, we kind of ask him what the hell went on there. Well, we shall see. We shall see. Um, yeah, so listen, well done, Ulster. Um, that is very very important for Irish rugby especially in the World Cup year uh, that they'll be playing Champions Cup uh, next season 
Uh, well done Munster and Leinster for serving up uh, an entertaining um, TV spectacle even if it mightn't have been the quality that Bernard wanted. <laughs> um, uh, Bernard, your time in Wales, what do you, you miss about living in France? Um, oh, listen, I think France is obviously a great place to live um, and family wise it was, uh, you know, it was an unbelievable uh, experience, you know, my kids are bilingual now. Um, even I'm uh, not bad at, <laughs> at, at, at French, which was great. Um, we it was a good environment to work in. Top fourteen is relentless, um, huge amount of pressure, um, but there's always that uh, lack of ability to, I suppose, have a uh, have a strategic plan. You know, it's very emotional. Things change um, very very quickly. So I think what's really exciting about working in Wales and working for the WRU is um, you know we we designed a plan in terms of trying to turn the Dragons around and, and making us um, competitive eventually hopefully being the, the best team in Wales um, <coughs> which we have a long way to obviously to go but that's built around um Developing our own players, you know, we've we've given 21 players the Pro, uh, the Pro 14 debut this year. Um, nine of those were teenagers. Um, there was some good talent in our in our region, and um, my job is to make sure we create the environment that allows them to to reach their potential. Hopefully, you know, be part of a winning dragon side, and if that leads to being a um, being a winning player in the, in the Welsh jersey, well then you know that's even that's even better. But um, I enjoy working with people who understand that there's a there's a process you have to go through to, to change a team from being I suppose you know at the bottom of the league to being higher up. And um, we're going through that this year. This year was a big transition year in terms of trying to get the right people on the bus. You know, so we've we've brought in 15 players. Uh, we're making some changes to the backroom staff, and because because it was such a uh, you know it was year one of a, of a project we did give a lot of players opportunities that maybe we wouldn't um, in year two or year three I think now, now we've we've got it, they've got to earn the right to play first um, and we've supplemented our squad with a lot of experienced fellas coming back from the Viva Premiership in particular um, Warren Gatlin changed the rule um, in terms of being allowed to play for Wales you got to play 60 times to play outside of Wales so my recruitment campaign was, was very much exiles focused um, a lot of Welsh Kids or players are left um, left Wales to seek opportunities in the Viva Premiership. Uh, people like Richard Hibbard, uh, Ryan Bevington, Ross Moriarty, Roger Williams, etc. Um, and they've come back now to try and put the Dragons um, on the right track and also hopefully uh, play for Wales. And also, we're able to bring back a fellow called Aaron Jarvis who went to Claremont, has got 16 caps for Wales been in the Ospreys um, been to a World Cup of Wales and he, he wants to come back and try and make the World Cup again so um, we have a completely different squad profile next year the youngsters that had never played a game have now played 5 or 6 and some of them played 12 or 13 and um, you know we've got a couple of guys who've got the first international caps uh, like Savelia D and Leon Brown in the front row, Corey Hill has become a, a starter for uh, for Wales, and, and we've got two more on cap players now going on tour this uh, this summer. So um, it's been a tough year on the pitch, but we can definitely see uh, big changes happening off it. Are you uh, perhaps better off if some of your players play really well but get ignored by Wales? Obviously, we we would be, but um, from my, my point of view, I just looked at our squad at the start of the season, and you know we had ninety nine caps in total in our in our dressing room. Um, the next, you know, the next lowest in Wales was 480. Um, so um, obviously the Ospreys had, had six, 670. So we were at a quarter of a fifth of the caps. And, and just, you know, you, you can be a great player without having, having been capped. But it just for me, if you've been in an international squad, you know, you know what it takes to, to win at the highest level. You've had that uh, experience of dealing with um, different coaches, different di- di- players from, from different environments, and you've played in, you know, for the 40, 50,000 people. So you're used to that pressure. Um, so we next year we'd have 260 caps. Um, for example, we had two cap forwards. Next year we'd have 10. You know, so we've made a big change within a year. Um, but also we want to, you know, to develop our own. And, and there's some good kids going, we've eight, ki- eight players going to the under-20s uh, tour to the World Cup, um, which is the most the Dragons have had in the last uh, nine years. Um, and there's two or three of those, we believe, can go from, from our academy to play for play for Wales. Some really talented players, guys like Max Williams, Tane Basham, um, a number eight. Um, there's a, a full-back called uh, Joe Goodchild, who we've got big hopes for. So but the big thing is they hadn't the environment to actually develop. You know, a lot of players didn't want to stay in the Dragons because the environment was poor um, and that's changed now we've tied down all our all our really promising players for at least three years so there's stability there for the first time ever And, and uh, but now we got to you know, we got to put it out in the field and we got to get better performance and better results hmm. Can I ask you um, very quickly before we uh, go for a break uh, back in Christmas week 
right, leading up to the New Year's Eve game against Ospreys. Yeah. Uh, Gavin Henson wasn't in the team. Yeah. And he got back to a fan saying, well, actually, I was I was dropped. Yeah. Um, we spent a bit of time in one show talking about that. We thought it was really interesting. What was it like from your perspective? I thought it was great. I think, you know, um, so many people, uh, there's nothing wrong with being dropped. It's how you, it's how you uh, react to it. And I think he, there was a lot of, spe- the problem in Wales is that um, Gavin is so high profile. You know, he's, he's box office and um, everybody wants to know his every move. And if you leave him out of the team, um, there's a bit of a media, uh, media, media, buzz about it and what happened Gavin Henson etc and first Gav Gav just you know was honest you know he just said listen I was dropped I didn't play well and uh, I thought it was I thought it was um, very brave I don't say it's the right thing to do because obviously you know the players don't don't comment on social media on, on their status but he just felt it was better to put it um, put it to bed be honest about it and uh, in fairness to him he he you know, unfortunately, he was in. He got injured pretty much straight after, and he has He didn't play again uh, for the whole season. But he had a shoulder injury first, and he had a hamstring injury. Um, but he's working very hard to come back next season and, and have another, uh, you know, another important uh, and big season for us. And he wants to play at least forty. You know, um, and he lives his life. Um, he's incredibly professional. He does everything right to try and extend his career. So, um, yeah, I, I, listen, I, I just. I, I didn't have any issue with it because he was just telling the truth you know and so I, I, I told the truth and he told the truth so um, but players get dropped all the time it's how you react hmm. there was one thing actually Bernard I wanted to ask um, look at the success that Tyg Byrne had when he went over from Scarlet's yeah. and he got picked up you probably know so many Irish lads young Irish lads that actually could make a difference for you but you're probably deliberately tying your hands. You pr- can't bring over Irish lads, or is it? Oh, open? Is the door open? Uh, if no, in theory, in theory, I can have six foreigners. Yeah. Um, but uh, I really want us to be the most Welsh, Welsh team, and um, you know, next year we'd have two two players who aren't available, who aren't qualified to play for Wales, which would be the most Welsh team. So my opportunity, my my vision is to to try and find you know the Welsh talent that's not getting the opportunity, and I know there's probably more talent. In Ireland, who are being blocked, obviously, the, it's very hard to get into one of the Irish teams. Mm. Um, the academies are full of young talent, and there's there's other tight burns out there. But realistically, for me, um, given we're the only team, you know, owned by the Welsh Rugby Football Union, also I want us to have, I want that to be part of our strength. Is that is that Welshness? Because uh, there's really good players in Wales. There's, Wales have had excellent or twenty sides over the last four or five years. And in actual fact, the problem in Wales is some of them don't get the opportunity to. Uh, to play regional rugby, mm. um, some end up going to England to play premierships. A guy like Josh Adams, mm. you know, left Scarlets. Roger Williams left left Scarlets to go to Bristol. Um, you know, Ross Moriarty came through the through the English system because he wasn't picked up in, in the Ospreys region. You know, he went to Hartbury and then he went into Gloucester. Um, so there's enough talent, I think, within Wales to for us to be able to try and identify that, bring them into the Dragons, and uh, and make them make them regional players at least. Okay. Need to have a Newport Scott talent. <laughs> Hard knocks actually are, doing, uh, are, doing, are, are going from Newport this year, so I'll keep an eye on them. Sweet. Uh, James and Bernard will be back in a few minutes to have a look at some of your social media questions, but Stuart Berry will be popping in for a chat next. Murder, she wrote, is the perfect thing to watch during the day. the start fall off for 40 minutes come back see the end perfect you know what I mean you've missed nothing really remember Rod Kev in the Kalina used to have to bring two TVs into the room one for you for Cheltenham <laughs> like every red blooded male in the country he'd be watching the horse racing whereas I'd have a TV for myself for things like Murder She Wrote and Houses Under the Hammer Murder, she wrote, is the perfect thing to watch during the day. Welcome back to the Hard Yards. I'm delighted to be joined by referee Stuart Berry. How are you? Morning, guys. Yeah, really good. Nice to be here. Uh, Stuart was the man in the middle for the Leinster Munster match at the weekend. Um, How did you get to be refereeing Leinster Munster when you were refereeing Super Rugby not long ago? (laughs) Um, Yeah, it's quite a, a... it's a great situation. It's a great scenario to be in. Um, and I made a comment when I was walking into the stadium on the weekend that, <clears throat> excuse me, as a South African referee, I never thought I'd be walking into a European stadium, um, 20 degrees Celsius, with half the crowd eating ice creams as I was walking in. <laughs> so it was it was a surreal moment. I think you know we we have derbies back in South Africa and back in the south, but this was this was something really special on the weekend. Um, the intensity of the game was as good as I've ever experienced. Um, 
the atmosphere was obviously unbelievable. Um, and I could see it wasn't just about Leinster versus Munster. There were personal battles on the field between players, obviously leading into Irish selection. And that's, as a referee, I think that's what you, you want to ref the best players in the best games in the world. And this game, I think, will certainly stand out for me as one of highlights of my career so far. Hmm. I'll come back to refereeing in a second. Um, are you a full-time referee? No, I'm not. Um, and one of the very few back south. I think um, my, my my character is quite ADD at times, so I think if I refereed only, I'd probably overcomplicate it. And I think it's a game that needs a bit of simplicity at times. So I've got my own events company back home, um, which is focused around music and sporting events. Mm. And I think that keeps me sane half of the time, hopefully. And so how much time can you devote to refereeing and how much time to your business? Because you, you own the business. I do, yes. Yeah. And I think the good thing about having your own business, or particularly in this case, is I've got a business partner who runs the company when I'm away. So I don't need to really choose most of the time. Um, so I can disappear, as I have now, for two weeks. We've just had a UB40 tour back home. <laughs> and he's he's running and operating that. And I, I can sit here with peace of mind that... I don't have to deal with anything. He's He's got everything tied up. Hmm. Um, we don't think about referees travel. We think about players traveling a lot being away from home. But um, I read something recently, uh, and I can't remember where it was. It might have been Rugby Players Ireland. But they were talking about every match for a referee is a travel day. Hmm. But you've been having travel weeks. Yeah, so travel's certainly one of the big challenges. And I think that would be one of my real pluses, having moved from a Southern Hemisphere arrangement to a Northern Hemisphere arrangement, is that for me it's an overnight flight, same time zone. So being a working referee, it allows me to still work in the same time zone. Uh, one of the challenges I had is you sitting in a hotel in Sydney for three weeks mm. and you're suddenly having to wake up at two o'clock in the morning to do a conference call back home because that's when everyone's working back home. So for me personally, it's been a wonderful arrangement. As much as there is extra travel, you're traveling to cities that are wonderful. Um, I had a full week of sun in Edinburgh the other day with not one drop of rain. <laughs> I had a game in Galway that had no rain and no wind. Oh. So it's, yeah, I found the travel a lot easier. Um, a fair number of friends, a lot of South Africans obviously living in the UK, so a fair number of friends here. So when you're in the third week of travel, it's very easy to hop on a, flow, a, hop on a plane from Dublin to London and go and visit mates for two days and then pop back to wherever your next game is. Yeah, and walk into a studio like this <laughs> yeah. one. That's good. Um, so you've you've refereed now in the Southern Hemisphere um, Elite com Club competition and now Northern Hemisphere also. Yeah. Uh, what are the differences that you see in the competitions? So I think the first thing, I mean, there, there was definitely a narrative down south that Northern Hemisphere club rugby wasn't as good from a spectacle perspective as Southern Hemisphere. And I think I can certainly say that that's not the case. Um, the two tournaments are on a par for me, um, very different type of rugby at times. I think Super Rugby uh, is less about set pieces and more about trying to break defence and running lines. <coughs> so I found, for instance, scrums last a good three, four seconds longer here. And I think if you look at the Cheetahs and the Kings when they first came up here, they'd last to about 60, 65 minutes in their first few games and then fatigue would set step in. Mm. Um, and chatting to someone like Rory Duncan from the Cheetahs, one of his comments was the forwards certainly find that there's three or four extra scrums and each lasts three or four seconds longer. And that, that little bit of extra time in a set piece and in a scrum changes the dynamics of the physicality of the game itself. So I think set pieces are a lot more important up here or valued a lot more. Um, from a breakdown perspective, I found it hugely disciplined up here. Um, I found it a little bit easier to referee yeah. at the breakdown. Um, I T think tell me what you mean by easier. Is that, is that the attitude of the players and their expectations? Yes, I do think that it's a coaching and a player attitude. Um, so I think player attitude comes from coaching attitudes, and I think that's a really positive thing that I've noticed up here is that coaches want to play positive rugby throughout. And mm -hmm. if they happen to lose to a team that played the same style of rugby that was just better than them on the day, then they can sleep at night saying, cool, we lost to a better team. And I think that's a, great, that's a great mentality to be having because it's producing a product that is really great to watch. Um, and I used the Leinster Munster example this weekend where if you didn't watch that game and you looked at the scoreline and it was 16-15, most people would create a perception of that to say, oh, that was a pretty boring game. But that was as good as a 45-42 game that had six, seven tries each side. And I think that's always, for me, a great example of a tournament that's doing well um, and a style of rugby that's doing well is where you can have a 16-15 scoreline and people walk away going, wow, that was a good game, right? Hmm. Uh, one thing I'll, I'll mention about the game of the weekend, the siding window for Leinster Munster is still open. So although I could spend lots of time asking questions about certain <laughs> incidents, um, like the John Klein cleaner out, you obviously can't talk because your, um, your report would be part of that. 
Correct. And it's it's like any legal process that's still going on until that's done, I suppose. We can't really make comment. Yeah, and rugby's discipline is very legal. <laughs> yes. You know. um, do you talk to coaches often? Uh, yes. Um, I'd say the content changes. Um, so you get very little interaction with coaches before, um, and I think rightly so. That's largely directed through the organisation and my referee manager. So if there are any key messages from those coaches um, that the tournament agrees needs to come to me, then that discussion will take place. I think what I've really enjoyed coming up north is that I've got very little history with coaches and players up here. So I have very little perception of teams, the history between teams, the history between certain players, the history between coaches. And likewise, they have very little perception of me. So I've got fewer scars on my back up here than I would, for instance, in the south. And I've found that hugely rewarding up here in that you, you end up refereeing what's in front of you, you get the players and the coaches just dealing with you as a person. And I've formed some wonderful friendships in a very short time up here with players and coaches. Mm. And that's been hugely rewarding as a referee because it's not just about performing on the field, it's, it's, everyone talks about the rugby community and it's, it's been really special and I've, I've loved that. I've felt hugely welcomed here and I think that's been great. Um, you say you mentioned refereeing what's in front of you. Um, coaches and uh, increasingly players prepare uh, very diligently mm. for the whims of various referees. Yes. Do you have whims? I think every referee has a profile. So um, we as a group always meet, and I think we can get as consistent as we can by having those meetings. So before the final series, um, the referees that were in line with finals, along with all the referee managers and the Pro 14 officials, got together at Pro 14's offices and we spent two days preparing for the final series. Um, and I think that preparation is important to ensure that we're talking and we're prioritising the right things within a game. And those priorities are also done based on discussions that Greg Garner, the referees manager, has had with the coaches themselves. So there's a lot of consistency around what are our priorities in the game from a coach's perspective and a referee's perspective. What, ensuring what are those priorities? So breakdown's obviously number one. Mm. Um, set piece is really important, and then space and time. So we, we appreciate that players, teams, and particularly the way in which coaches are coaching in this tournament is space and time is key. So my comment to both coaches on the weekend is that my intention is to stay within my profile, which would be quick board at the breakdown, so dealing with tackler release, tackler rolling away, which is a key priority and to get my ARs really involved with offside lines. And if we can create space, then we're going to bring the best out of players. And that's essentially what we want to do, is facilitate something where the players can show their skills. When players show their skills, the best team wins. Hmm. Um, there's a lot of talk about TMO in sport, mm. and certainly the, the um, soccer replay system's getting mm. a bit of a look. We've had it in mm. rugby for longer. Uh, do you enjoy having the TMO? Yes, I think there's a line to be drawn and I think we're close to where that right line is. Um, I think the TMO in this day and age, you want that four safe. Uh, where that four safe line stands is the one that's still moving at the moment. Um, what do you mean by that? Do you reckon that we're using it a little too much still or do you reckon we're not using it in the right way? Uh, I think because it's such a dynamic thing that, you know, and let's, we take an example of a knock-on that takes place um, in the middle of the field or versus a knock-on that takes place in the two phases leading up to a try. So a coach whose job is on the line will always say both knock-ons are as important as each other. But at some stage we've got to draw a line somewhere. And I think everyone in the, the greater public, the, the stakeholders agree that anything leading up to a scoring opportunity would have more of an influence than something doesn't lead up to a scoring opportunity. So I think, I think the approach of using TMO um, at key parts leading to scoring opportunities is the right approach. Um, and I know World Rugby are working really hard on where is that fine line? Is it two phases before? Is it one phase before? Where is that line as to where the TMO gets involved or not? Hmm. Um, I'm going to bring you back to something here. So, and I'm going to explain why I'm asking the question, hmm. right? 2014, TMO get involved, uh, you're effing lines against Blues. And there was yes. a really interesting incident as part of a try scoring where the attacking lines player lost the ball forward in the tackle or that was one interpretation yeah. of what was seen um, and when the TMO and yourself had the chat on the field you determined that the ball was actually knocked out of the attacking player's hands by the defender thus it was knocked backwards so when the when the next lion dots the ball down try try given um, it's safe to say there was a lot of discussion about that one. yeah huge amount and it was very interesting to me that um, there was public statements made by the refereeing bodies because yep. 
I actually think we should do more of this. And it's not to say the referee got it wrong. It can also be the referee got it right and here's why and here's a video clip. Mm. I'm just wondering, because you do remember it well, mm. well, what's your view on this? Should we be doing more communication between referees and fans? Yes and no. So I think it, it comes back to the discussion of where, well, the same mentality of when do you get the TMO involved. So if if the governing bodies comment on every single time there's controversy, where where do you draw the line to the public, to yourselves as media, as to when are you due an explanation, when are you not due an explanation? So I think that's a really hard one, and I don't know what the answer is to that. Um, I think, you know, there's certain cases where the nature of the game and the nature of the incident just requires clarity. Um, and using that example in the Blues Lions, for example, at that stage, um, that was a 100% mistake from me on the field. Uh, two years later, the interpretation changed, and that would have been the right decision on the field. Mm. And, uh, and at the time, if I got this right, and correct me if I'm wrong, mm. um, the Sanzar refereeing chief had one view, but the, the South African referees chief had an opposing view. Yes. So it actually got more complicated with people looking at the same laws. It did. Yeah. And I think... I think that's an example of also why we love rugby. Is rugby is full of emotion. Um, it's it's full of you can go, you'll go to the Viva on Saturday, um, and you'll you'll leave because there's so much emotion in this game where it's not just black and white. Um, and it was actually interesting. In, in my hotel on Friday night, we were sitting watching the Glasgow Scarlets game, and there were a whole lot of American tourists who'd come to watch the Rolling Stones concert. And the one lady got sitting with us chatting about rugby, and she was watching, and she was fascinated by how fast it was, the fact that there weren't these massive stoppages going to TV referees and technology. And she was, as someone who'd never watched rugby, was sat there for 40, 45 minutes watching with us and loved every single minute of it because there was continuity to it and there was very little technical involvement. And uh, myself and my two AOs were sitting there. It was, it was quite a nice interaction with someone who'd never seen rugby before, had a, a reference of American rugby or American football. Um, and immediately loved the pace, the fact that there was very little interruption in the game from a technology or a referee perspective of stopping and checking this and checking that. So I think that that's a good example of where we need to be a little bit careful of going too much towards a technology-focused outcome, as much as it might solve one or two issues from a from a passion and, a, mm. and an accuracy perspective. Okay. Um, 2019 is coming up, uh, Rugby World Cup on the way. Mm. You've refereed in Japan before, mm. uh, as I think was your test debut. It was, yeah, yeah. with All Blacks. Yeah, is that the is that the goal? Be on, the, be part of the officiating team for the World Cup. Yeah, um, I was involved in 2015 World Cup uh, as an AR, and I think to date, certainly one of my most cherished memories. Um, I think to be involved in a competition of of that magnitude. Um, to have come out with no scars, um, to to just be part of something that big, it's the World Cup is everything, um, and it's clear when you're involved in the tournament that it is everything. Uh, what happens in the three and a half, four years leading up to that, every country leads up to a World Cup as as a referee does, and I've got wonderful memories of Japan. Um, as you mentioned, my first test was there, and it was a really special rugby experience. It's a different rugby experience to what I've had anywhere in the world. The, people are respectful. I'll, I'll never forget after the game in the Prince Chigamburu Stadium in, in Tokyo. Um, you're allowed to bring your own beer in. <laughs> Everyone rocks up in a, in a suit and jacket. Um, and afterwards, there's not one cleaner that goes through the stadium. Everyone cleans up their little piece of their seat, Oof. takes their rubbish and litter out with them and disposes of it at home. And that, for me, was just an example of such a respectful culture. And I, I think everyone, fans going to going to Japan next year are going to have a superb rugby experience. I'm trying right. to get the Irish fans to do something <laughs> like that. Um, the one, one thing I wanted to ask you, Stuart, was uh, what's your view on, on captains talking to you about things? Are, are you just a person who likes the captains or can anybody kind of step up and have a word to you on the pitch? I think it's, I think it's based on the situation. So where you, where you clearly, for instance... I think as a referee, you know key characters on the field, <laughs> captain and vice-captain are two of those, but you might find that your captain's on the wing and the vice-captain's at scrum off. Um, and there's a fetcher that you are going to have to interact with often during the game. He's a key person to not have on your side, but keep under control. So that would be an example where you would be quite happy to have downtime chats with that person because you, un you know that his understanding of you and vice versa is key to the outcome of this game and continuity. Um, 
So I think it's very specific to who's playing, what the situation is. Um, but you don't want to get to a situation or a scenario where you're just opening it up for everyone to start questioning and, and, and having that discussion. And I think the good captains are the ones that time their discussion with you um, and ask the right questions that make you sit back as a referee and go, oh yeah, good point. Hmm. Is someone like Johnny Saxon, you just know he's going to be talking to you anyway, whether he's captain or not? Yeah, and I think but he's he's a key player where, where, where you would draw a line around interaction, but interact with him because hmm. he's earned the right to be interacted with. Um, and he's also the kind of key player that I think is professional enough to not take it beyond mm. that that boundary that that is that is unacceptable. Mm. So uh, if you're the young twenty year old making your debut, not so much. Yeah, wearing your stripes. Okay, Stuart thanks very much for popping into us. Uh, I hope you've enjoyed your time in the studio. It's been great. Thanks for having me. The Hard Yards on Sports Joe, brought to you by Innocent Super Smoothies. On the bright side. We're going to take a look at some of your social media questions now. Thanks to everyone who sent them in. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at THYRugby and use the hashtag AskTHY if you want to get in a question for next week's show. First one, uh, two questions here. First one is uh, from James McLuggage. What more does Mr Cooney have to do to get on that plane to Australia? And also from Jason Ward, how close is John Cooney to being backup scrum half for the national team? Player of a season by some distance with Ulster, continually putting in performances that have helped the Northern faithful forget that South African fellow they had before him. Squad is being announced this week, Pat. Yeah, midweek, yeah. yeah. Um, Cooney was actually, he spoke to the press after the Ulster game, another good game for him, and he'd said in two weeks' time he's either going to be on an Ireland tour he's going to be on a beach in Thailand so he said he's going to be winning either way so uh, I, I think he might make the squad um, but it'd be interesting to see who you leave out do you leave out McGrath or Marmion then so uh, he could be that kind of backup 9-10 option if they didn't want to bring someone like Ross Byrne but uh, can they bring four scrum halves maybe it'll be a little bit greedy yeah it'd be, probably be a waste if you were mm. going to do something I'd probably switch up Marmion maybe and just bring in Cooney Cooney's been Hands up, player of the year up in in Ulster. So, you've, if you got to go in form, you got to pick him and, and bring him to Australia. I think he's thoroughly deserved it. So, um, why would you not have him in there? Hmm. It's um, he's had a very very good year. He has had a very good year, but I, I, um, I can also understand why he is, hasn't been involved. I mean, if you look at what Marmion Marmion um, gives you, is that is that you know threat around the breakdown he's a different type of player he's more impact Luke is probably um, more of a sniper as well um, I think what you know there's an argument that if you're if Conor Murray was out that potentially you could bring in um, uh, bring him in to start rather than actually be on the bench you know mm-hmm. like, like I think Luke and Kieran are different different options uh, in terms of their profile to come off the bench uh, whereas Cooney is probably more of a starting line mm-hmm. um, for me now obviously um if you're going to bring him on tour, it's a big, big ass to drop one of those boys, you know. And Luke's yeah. had a couple of niggles, um, you know, at the end, towards the end of the season. Uh, I don't see him being international ten, uh, whereas obviously he's played a little bit of ten when when also being desperate. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's what he is is a is a really good example of what happens when you when you move province if you're stuck behind somebody you know so he was obviously in Connacht behind Marmion um, an opportunity arose in Ulster and you know he would definitely play for Ireland um, uh, you know plenty of times it's just but now he's in he's in an environment where he's the main man um, and he's getting to show his talent week in week out yeah other players who we think might go on toward Tyburn is a, a given we assume uh, Sammy Arnold yeah I think so as well I think there might only be maybe three uncapped lads so you have uh, so Cooney Cooney got a cap so Cooney's yeah, got Cooney's his cap, cap in Japan mm. yeah uh, so you have Arnold's you have Tigburn and then I'll get back to you on the third one ok we'll see <laughs> uh, Tigburn Tigburn actually you know he, he was players player of the year player of the year and he got tried the season them, yeah. Scarlet Awards <laughs> so he has been he has been absolutely phenomenal um, and you would like to think that he's all, the fact that he's now you know he signed for Munster um, he's available like the reason I think in the, in the Six Nations was obviously the fact that he would have to go back to Scarlets you know, during the Six Nations period. That was a valid argument why um, you couldn't bring him in. Because I would be in favour of if someone is committed for the following season um, to come back to Ireland, that there should be a little bit of a leeway in terms of using him that season. Ethical loophole. Yeah, ethical yeah. loophole. Because um, there's no official rule. No. You know? um, uh, but I think that it's time is right now to to bring him to Australia because he just gives you he, he gives you the Scott Fardy you know versatility in terms of being able to play lock or, or back row yeah. um, and obviously also his quality as well. 
Okay. Um, all right, just the third one. Yeah. Either Ross Byrne or else a winger. So maybe a Wooden or a Barry Daly, something like that. Oh, I could see Daly. Yeah. yeah. Just as, like, you know, Schmidt sometimes pulls these ones out. Like, so, like, uh, I kind of said in the past that if they get an, an injury or two in the wing, um, they might be a little bit short. So maybe give a guy like Daly, who's been in the squad before, a bit of international experience. Okay. Um, oh, God. Right, here's a complicated <laughs> one, right? Ian McDonald. Would the best solution to the Ulster stroke Munster 10 problem be to send Ian Keatley to Ulster to nurture Johnny McPhillips and send Joey Carberry to compete with JJ and Tyler for the Munster 10 shirt while getting game time with Conor Murray? That's a big merry-go-round right there. J- Jimmy's just sitting <laughs> back. There's a, lot in, there's a lot in that. I don't think it's going to happen. So. A lot going on. Um, no, I don't see that happening at all, really. I'm not yeah. sure Keats is going to move up to... There's not much much, not no. much for him there, is there? No, no, I don't think. I don't see why he would, to be no. honest. Uh, but the Joey to Munster thing, if you took the Ulster thing out... Say, say if Ulster weren't in, the cha- weren't in the Champions Cup next year, right? This conversation about Joey Carberry would not involve Ulster. It would actually involve Munster because you get a lot of benefits there. A number of columnists have pointed this out, that you would get him playing more often with Conor Murray, which is what you would want mm-hmm. coming up to World Cup here. Um, are we just chasing a story here, Bernard, or is there value at this stage of moving these players around? No, I think there's value in this, in, in, in this instant because you've got a, a guy who's the backup 10 for Ireland um, getting very limited game time at 10 for his province. Um, you know, he started the game at 15, obviously, at the weekend. And Munster... You know, I think Keats and uh, it, the problem is that is that Tyler's so injury prone. You know, so Munster um, are very. I know JJ's had, JJ started the weekend, but he hasn't had a clear run at at ten as well. I think it's always worth talking about it. You know, the fact that um, the IRFU seem to have made the decision that it will be best. You know, for Joey to move means that you know it's not pie in the sky. It's it's a, it's a valid discussion. Um, I can understand why Leinster wouldn't want to want to lose him. Um, you know, if if Johnny was injured, um, you know, then they have obviously still two really good tens between Joey and, and Ross, and Leinster will feel that they developed him. So it's a it's an emotional one for for everyone involved. I mean, um, Connacht wouldn't want to have lost uh, John Cooney. You know, they would have preferred to have two quality nines, and it's just a case of, I suppose trying to stand back and, and take the motion away and look at look at what's best what's going to serve uh, best serve the player and what's going to best serve the country um, and by sometimes by doing that you can actually best serve one of the provinces as well so um, I don't know I, I think Ulster will end up with a foreign 10 to be honest I don't think it'll be it'll be Joey Carby I think they'll go for a foreign 10 uh, because for Ulster if you bring Joey in um, he's going to be missing in November yeah. Six Nations this World Cup year you, you miss big chunks of your season um, without the 10 he would, and it was one point I would make that um, there's a number of people that I've seen say look put the time into McPhillips well you need at least two 10s yeah. you need at least two top drawer 10s to play rugby as it is now uh, and that's not even um, taking into account time off with the national side so um, Ulster are looking for one anyway this is not a Joey or Ross Byrne versus McPhillips situation um, but yeah look we'll we'll keep trying to work out where the <laughs> merry-go-round there's stops also, there's also a 10 you can sign now because Blenanol's now Irish qualified isn't it so there's oh, still that one yeah. foreign spot that you can pick someone at 10 so I yeah. think that's a it's possible South African maybe what coming in from Munster from Munster yeah. there's certainly a theme yeah Johan just has a few numbers in the WhatsApp group that he's going to set up yeah apologies <laughs> to whoever sent this in I'm looking for it but I found it Alan Dempsey um uh, the new name for Thoman Park will be Tom Fontaine. <laughs> like yeah, Erno both are coming as well next season as well. Yeah, yeah. Like that. I'm not sure how they get away with that. Uh, okay, very very last one. Okay, um, this is one really. I think I think it's directed to Bernard. Uh, why do refs in all leagues view the rough and the, the rock and infringement around it so differently? Does it bother uh, you professionally? Well, I think it's a, it's a, something that's unique to the Pro 14. Um, and we, you know, I, Do you think I, it is unique to the Pro 14? Oh, 100%. It is. 100% because I speak to the um, the head referees every weekend uh, or every Monday morning. Um, and it's a very difficult uh, issue to sort out. And then also the counter-argument is that it actually makes our players better. You know, so if you look at why Ringland's so poor in the breakdown... Um, 
in the Six Nations people were saying is because of the way the, ref- the, the breakdown is refereed in the Viva Premiership that um, Eddie Jones was very clear it wasn't his fault no well obviously yeah but uh, I do think that if you look at if you look at how they manage the referees they have them all into tricking them on a Monday and Tuesday you know they review the games together there's real clarity about um, their interpretation of the law so you watch Gloucester against Worcester you know and you follow that with Northampton against Bath you're going to see this similar type of of interpretations from referees and coaches and players will adapt to that very quickly so um, whereas with us we have South African referees Welsh referees Italian referees you know and Scottish referees and Irish referees who all have a a slightly different um, interpretation of it and then within those referees there's there's probably not as much consistency as there is in the Aviva Premiership, which I think makes us as coaches have to be more uh, more forensic in how we do our referee analysis. We have to be able to um, coach our players to be able to adapt that weekend to that style. Um, but it definitely is, I'm sure it's frustrating for fans who who see one thing, one referee being really hard on one area this Saturday and the following weekend they're watching the same competition but a completely different um, style of refereeing so um, and I know it's hard for it's hard to coordinate that because each referee have a different referee manager you know they all referee they all report to um, to the Pro 14 but effectively that message can can get diluted Um, it's not it's not as easy it's not as easy to um to have that consistency and clarity of thought as it is in in a competition on top fourteen or a Viva Premiership, where effectively you know you've everybody under the same control. So, uh, but I, I don't think I think for us definitely for our players it makes it more tactically uh, adaptable. Yeah. Okay. Um, that's an interesting perspective, actually. Uh, thank you, Brian Hughes, for that question. And that's it. Make sure to use the hashtag #AskTHY if you want to get a question in for next week. The Pro 14 final takes place this Saturday at the Aviva Stadium between Leinster and Scarlets. Tickets are available on Ticketmaster. So thanks to Pat, Bernard, James and Stewart, to Alan Lachman for producing and Shane Dempsey and Fiona Delaney were on production. We'll be back next Monday with a new show. Subscribe to it on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud and every good podcast app to get it straight to your phone. This has been The Hard Yards. I'm Andy McGeady. Thank you for listening and we'll talk to you next week. The Hard Yards on Sports Joe. Brought to you by Innocent Super Smoothies on the bright side. I don't think we met before, but I'm the referee on this field, not you. Hi Rob, Zeeb's here. Just want to discuss the captaincy next. He's calling. Ah! Oh, and Ring Rose comes through. Oh, that is brilliant from Ring Rose. Ring Rose is.